Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the executive director and founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marsley. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marsley. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We have a great show for you today. I'm very, very excited. We have a great show for you today. We are talking about being an inclusive employer, and we have a bit of a personal agenda. Blind Beginnings is in the process of hiring two part-time program coordinators, and we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to be inclusive and accessible and accommodating because we would really love to have applications from people who are blind or partially sighted. So I invited somebody to join us for this conversation who I think is an expert in this area. Amy Amanti is the accessibility coordinator for the Arts Club Theater Company, but she's also an actor, an artist, an advocate, and somebody I consider a friend. Welcome back to the podcast, Amy. Thanks, John. Really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're here. So we're talking about this because of my own, you know, the blind beginnings agenda, but also <laughs> thinking that this is a really important conversation that could help other employers mm-hmm. sort of get on board in hiring people with disabilities. And maybe I think, you know, employers have a lot of reservations about or have some reservations about hiring people with disabilities, wow. how to go about doing that. So maybe you can start by explaining a little bit about your role. I'm curious as an accessibility coordinator, what do you do? Okay. So, um, you know, this, this has been a, a, a silver lining of the pandemic for me. I started, uh, in 2020. So my uh, employment has, has all been from home, although I've gone into the various theaters a couple of times here in Vancouver for various projects, but for the most part, I get to work from home. Um, which is really great for me because again, when we talk about accessible workplaces, my work area that I have created in my environment is as accessible as it can be for me. Uh, The lighting's right, the temperature's right, you know, all the pieces that I need to function at my maximum effectiveness are in place, uh, which is great. But my role at the Arts Club is many fold, Sean, I will say many fold. Um, As you know, in my life anyways, I wear many hats, but um, I started with them when they did something called... um, the Accessibility in a Digital World Symposium, uh, probably got that name wrong because it was in 2019. So just before the pandemic, they opened up one of their theaters, invited a whole bunch of theater makers and a whole bunch of people from the disability community to talk about accessibility in the arts. And then, of course, when the job came up, I thought, huh, I kind of already have a shoe in with these folks. I should <laughs> I should apply. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I do with the theater company is I'm, I'm looking at accessibility and inclusion. And I think those two things are separate, although they're married to each other. Um, from a holistic perspective. And my my thought process around accessibility has always been that it's a bit of a continuum. We all come to this conversation with different um, levels of knowledge and different backgrounds. 
Um, and I think once we recognize as an organization or as an individual where we are on that continuum, we can make you know purposeful steps to move forward. So with like no judgment, I came in and I said, where are we on this continuum? What are we doing? What haven't we done? What would we like to do? Um, and that doesn't, you know, a lot of people think that that looks like just from an audience perspective, you know, do we have wheelchair seating? Do we have described theater performances? Do we offer ASL or open captions uh, for, for patrons? But what about people who work there? You know, do we have inclusive environments? What about actors? Is our, our stages accessible? So this holistic approach, you know, is our website accessible? Are we looking at um, what the rehearsal hall looks like and audition processes? So we're looking at this from a very well-rounded um, perspective. You know, is staff trained to be able to understand just a little bit of the lived experience so that they can have a better understanding of, for example, when they're hiring, what the barriers are before somebody even gets in that door for that interview, right? Because I think if we don't understand that, we tend to hold it against people when they aren't air quotes, perfect. Um, and that, you know, that could just be part of the lived experience. It could be part of the barriers that somebody faces before they even get into the door. So as an organization with a lot of privilege, how do we leverage that privileged privilege to provide opportunities for, for other equity seeking folks? It's interesting. You're talking about you know, we tend to think of the obvious things and mm -hmm. like the people who are coming to the theater, but what about the people who work there, the actors yep. at blind beginnings? I mean, I'm the blind staff person yes. and, and, you know, we want to make sure everything's accessible to our members. We like really good at that, yeah. <laughs> not going to require anybody to have to read anything and, you know, yeah. just really, it's easy to consider, but there have been there's maybe software that is really hard for me to access or other things within the organization that aren't as accessible. So yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of this is exploration. Um, I'm going to say that a lot of this is not like a black and white, right and wrong kind of thing. Cause this is all like art itself is a bit of a gray area because every human being is different and they have different access needs. And so there are some things I think that we can circumvent in, in accessibility and say, okay, uh, for example, when we internally now at the Arts Club, when we look at documents, before I came aboard, you know, everything was being sent out in a PDF that was not screen reader accessible, nor if I wanted to magnify it, could I do that successfully because it would pixelize and then mm -hmm. you couldn't read the text anyways. Um, and so, I often say this, and again, I say this without judgment, but when folks with disabilities aren't in our spaces, we forget about them. Um, and that's, I think that's just, that's a factor of, of human life. And, and, and a prime example for me when I joined the Arts Club was, they asked me to look at their um, evacuation plan. And of course, you know, their muster station is outside the front door, up a curb on a hilly piece of grass. And it's like, mm. okay, nobody thought about who was working in this building. Well, we didn't have a wheelchair user. Well, but that doesn't mean you don't think about them, right? And now that I'm working there, they're like, oh, geez, how does Amy get out of this building, right? Mm -hmm. um, when I'm in your space, when we are in your space, you start to remember that our needs are just as necessary as folks that are able-bodied. Um, but there isn't enough representation in, in these careers, right? So we tend to get forget forgotten about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, at Blind Beginnings, obviously we want to hire people who are blind Mm -hmm. as role models to the parents and the younger kids to show the capabilities of people who are blind. But can you talk a little bit about why 
other employers should hire people with disabilities, why it would be beneficial? I mean, it's huge. You know, statistically, if we are looking at approximately 25%, because we know that number has gone up from the 22% statistic in 2017, part of the 2017 census. So if we're looking at approximately 25% of the population identifying with disability, that's a huge pool of talent um, that can be utilized in terms of uh, being integrated into organizations. Statistically, people with disabilities, uh, so the biggest fears, of course, are, well, this person's going to be sick all time, all the time, then they're not going to show up for work, they're going to cost too much money, because I have to purchase a whole bunch of uh, technology to support them. Um, and, and I think those are, are systemic fears in the minds of able-bodied folks, because they tend to, when you don't know somebody with a disability, you tend to go, how could they possibly, right? And I experienced this my whole life as a, when I, after I was blind, going into, to, it took me 12 years to fly and find employment, going into an, uh, into an audition, into uh, an interview. <laughs> Might've felt that way. Say, yeah. And they would say to me like, well, how do you use a photocopier? How do you use the phone? How do you, and it's like, well, first mm. of all, it's not really any of your business, how I do that. I'm telling you, I can do that. And you wouldn't ask anybody else that question. Right. Right. Um, about the basics of, of how they would do their job. So, you know, because when you're an able-bodied person, you can't sort of say, well, yes, I can imagine myself as a blind person. Um, you can't grasp that reality. So, um, but so statistically folks with disabilities are much more reliable. They take less sick days. They're more loyal to organizations. They work harder. And I think systemically from an internalized, maybe even internalized ableism perspective, those of us with disabilities, when we get jobs are sort of meant to feel like, oh, I should be grateful, mm-hmm. right? I've got a job and I know how hard this was to get. So I'm not leaving this job if I like this job because it's so hard to get another job. Yes. Um, so, you know, but, and statistically, I know I heard a great story once about uh, a man, a one-armed man who wanted to work um, in a factory and they were like, well, but you have to, I think it was a candle factory and you had to screw the lid on the glass candle. And they were like, but you only have one, one arm. Like, how do you, you know? And so they, mm-hmm. they, they fabricated like a $12 piece of metal for him to hold, um, hold down the jar so he could use his hand to $12. Yeah. <laughs> right? So when we talk about adaptations, they're not as expensive as we make them out to be. Awesome. Yeah. And of oh. course people with disabilities are part of our community, Sean, like you know, I want mm-hmm. them in my environment. They are, they are my community that we have richness and talent and stories and lived experience. And I think when we start to introduce that as, as outside of our lived experience, we learn so much about humanity and how we can better our internal practices around access and inclusion. I think that's a bonus for every employer. Absolutely. Okay. So if, if you are the employer, um, mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that we are being inviting and welcoming and inclusive. Are there things to consider in just posting the job in the first place? Yeah, I think so. I think depending on the demographic that you're trying to reach, in this case, Blind Beginnings is looking for folks who identify with blindness or partial sight. Um, You want to go where these folks are accessing their, um, whether it's social media um, or whether it's, um, you know, certain Facebook groups or email uh, networks, you know, those, uh, what do they call those? Those chain list, list Thank serves. you, that listserv, that's what I was looking for. So listservs are really, really great. Um, and oftentimes, you know, if you're posting in places like 
Um, you know, VCC has a program for folks who are blind. So maybe you reach out to uh, Vancouver Community College and say, hey, we've got a, a job opportunity here. And, and so I think, you know, you, you start to go where people in the community congregate. Um, and we don't, we're not all, all of us aren't looking on, you know, indeed.com or, you know, Workopolis, yeah. if that one still exists, you know, those things are becoming less and less a way of, of, of accessing equity seeking groups. I think it's the same, whether you're trying to hire indigenous folks, um, you know, it, gone are the days where you just put the ad in the newspaper and everybody found it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sometimes you got to be a bit creative. And oftentimes I find word of mouth is huge in the disability community. Yeah. Get a consultant and help them spread the word to the community. So have you dealt with, this is something I'm, I'm like going off script here a little bit because this is a question that came up while we were creating the job postings, but we did include, um, people with lived experience of, uh, what did, how did we call it? Lived experience of blindness is an asset or something like that. But we debated back and forth, like we want to hire a person who's blind for this position, at yeah. least one of them and ideally both, but we can't, we can't do that. Like we can't, we can't yeah, discriminate. You can't segregate from people who aren't blind. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So it was like, how do we in writing on this posting, let people know that we really, truly, we're not just like putting it as a statement on a job posting, out of some obligation, or I, I don't know, maybe I'm not being fair to other employers, but we truly, truly mean it. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is it's, there it's part of your mission and your mandate, right? Exactly. Um, to, mm-hmm. So that's a, I think that's a whole other, other level of equity and inclusion. Um, I would say, you know, I think, you know, some job postings I've seen, and, and this kind of rubs me the wrong way, but I've seen, you know, we encourage, you know, women, non-binary, people of color, indigenous people, and folks with disabilities to apply for this job. And every time I see that, I think to myself, well, yeah, of course, like, Mm. (laughs) why would we not be applying for these jobs? But I think what's helpful in some of these, you know, when you've got an organization like Blind Beginnings, that you can put a statement in there that's part of your mission. Like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's really important to our organization that we have representation of people with lived experience, Uh, you know, and, and, um, um, that's really, you don't need to say anything further. Like we encourage you to apply or, but just having that sort of, uh, it's, it's a bit of a different type of mission statement. Maybe it's a hiring statement. Um, but I think if you add something like that in, when folks are reading these posts, that's the inclusion part. It's not the access part. It's the inclusion part. It makes me go, huh, this is a place I want to work. Right. Um, and if, if you're part of the community. Yeah. And if it's part of your statement, that's like, obviously you'd be open to hiring people then like, it's kind of that unsaid, but yeah. really said. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you talk about the difference between inclusion and accessibility? Yeah, sure. I can. Um, I think for me, accessibility is a lot about physical environments, a lot about technology. Um, and inclusion is a lot about, um, language that we use in spaces, how we make people feel, um, whether we make them feel welcome. I mean, we can have um, screen reading software and accessible documents and, you know, tactile references on things in our workplace and still not speak to the person who's blind. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's a difference there. You know, it's, it's, it's about creating community in the workplace and having the member of the disability community feel just as welcomed in that space as other folks that are working there. 
Um, and oftentimes times I find when I'm in a social environment at work, it's, uh, I feel like I can't go up and approach people because I don't know who's in the space, but then nobody approaches me. Right. Um, yes. And that doesn't make me feel included. It makes me feel the opposite. And why would I want to be in a company, you know, an organization or a company where I don't feel like I'm embraced for, for my own, not only for my skills and my talent, which is part of the job requirements, but part of, you know, my personality and what I bring as a human being to the space. So those things I think to me are two very different things, but again, they're married to each other, mm-hmm. right? Do you think there are things if as the person who is blind or partially sighted looking at a job posting, and we talked about mm-hmm. kind of that mission statement or employment statement, um, is there anything else that would let us know we're not welcome or this wouldn't be a good place to, to work? Yeah. I mean, I think in generally speaking, you know, when we, um, are using language around the disability experience. So for example, I saw one job posting once, once that said something like, um, you know, we're, we're an inclusive hire of handicapped people. And I Ooh. thought, okay, um, <laughs> that doesn't bring people in from the community, right? Like right. <laughs> so oh boy. those kinds of things, you know, I think, you, you know, examining language, a lot of people are really triggered by language. Some people aren't at all, but if you're looking for, f- to include everybody, then you consider that in the kind of, um, posting that you're, that you're putting out there. Um, yeah. I was thinking about um, a requirement for a driver's license as a thing that always makes me think, oh, okay, that's yeah. not that's not somewhere they're going to be open to me. And it, it's funny because it's not necessarily that you need a driver's license. In some cases, it's just that you need to, to travel mm-hmm. for the job, right? So mm-hmm. maybe there's another way to do that. There was a great study around this when I um, was taking my human resources program, and it was a case study around firefighters. Um female versus male firefighters. And the job description at one time had said something like, you have to be able to lift 200 pounds to be a firefighter. And then the the women who were there were like, well, I can't lift 200 pounds. Does that make me any less qualified to be a firefighter? And so they had to re-examine that language um, uh, to to talk, you know, they 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 had to choose different language um, in order to not segregate people who didn't think that they could lift the 200 pound requirement. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's a bit about instead saying things like, um, you know, a, a commitment to carrying heavy loads. Right. Okay. So, cause that's going to be something different for everybody and, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, you do what you can do and, and you can be more effective when you work within your own um, your own access needs, right? Mm-hmm. So if somebody's going to tell me to carry 200 pounds, I'm not going to be able to do that, but maybe I can carry 50 pounds twice as fast as somebody who's carrying 200 pounds mm-hmm. and I can move the same amount of gear. And, you know, so I, it's, it's something to consider when we, when we put out, um, when we put out postings about the kind of people that we want. Yeah. Okay. So here's a scenario. Ooh. You get an application yeah. from a person who is low vision or partially sighted, and there's a lot of typos. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on one hand, I'm thinking, I get it. I was partially sighted. Now I'm pretty much more on the blind end of the spectrum. But um, before I used a screen reader, I'm sure I made some typos too. With the screen reader, it sort of catches a lot of that stuff because you're listening to it read to you. But so, you know, it's not intentional, but at the same time, they're, they're going to be 
writing on behalf of your organization, what they write is going out there, they're going to be communicating and it's part of, you know, it will reflect on the image of the organization. What would you say in that situation or how would we handle that? Yeah. I think that's not, that is not isolated to a blind, partially sighted experience. So I know many folks who are, for example, English second language Mm. who would have, maybe not typos, but use the, the wrong word in the wrong place. Um, and again, as somebody who is fluent in English, we read that and we think, oh, that person's uneducated or that person missed that. Or, um, you know, there are folks like myself, I live with dyslexia and this is new to me because I mean, obviously I've lived with it my whole life, but it's been a recent diagnosis in my life, Mm. um, to understand what that means. Um, and so if I see the word or hear the word to, I'm, I, I might see it or hear it as, or, even though it's written as two, mm. and that's just because my brain can't necessarily switch that fast in that moment. And if you're using a spell checker to and, or, or of they're spelled correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just not the right word in the right place. And my brain can't, even though my speech pattern says, yes, I said two, but my fingers and my brain typed of. Um, which is, you know, something that I've done my whole life. And I, I didn't recognize that I had done it because I couldn't self-correct that. Um, Cause I couldn't, you couldn't see it. Not, not only literally, but your brain couldn't comprehend it when you saw it. And my ears can't comprehend it when I hear it. Um, Cause it just sounds like the sentence I put together. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, when we, when we look at something like that, there's a couple of things that we can do. One is, um, and, and this also Sean, to be honest with you is, is a part of, whether somebody self-discloses in their cover letter that they live with a disability. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's everybody's choice to make, whether they disclose in a cover letter or in the interview process. I disclose in my cover letter because by the time I get to the interview, I have my white cane in hand anyways. I'm not air quotes able to hide anything. Yes. Nor do I want to hide anything. So I want to be proud about my disability. I want to be forthcoming about it. And I want to be able to use it as my strength, a little bit like my superpower without being too inspiration porny about it. But (laughs) you know, it's, it's, I, you know, I want, in some ways I want people to be like, whoa, this person's got their, their poop together. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) you know, and they have disability, but I can see potential in this person and that, you know, so like you got to market yourself a little bit as an employer. When we see these things, this is what I say about understanding the lived experience and some of the barriers that come with living with a disability. Um, So if you have that understanding when you're reading somebody's resume, your first clue isn't, oh, they're uneducated or, oh, they're sloppy or not detail oriented because that could be further from the truth. And some folks um, need to be able to do things differently. So when we hire folks like this, there are things we can do as well. We can team them up with a buddy so that there's somebody that's always spell checking. Um, We can... um, purchase software that helps better catch some of these things. Um, I I like to advocate a lot for this idea of of co-working opportunities so that you may have two folks sharing a position and maybe they're both part-time, but they're able to have each other's back and they learn a lot from each other that way. Um, And so if one person's strong skill set is to, you know, write correspondence on behalf of the organization, then maybe the other person is the, the, um, the one who's is, is reading it and doing the editing and then they're learning through that process how best to put correspondence together. So it's a bit of a, like a co-working slash mentorship opportunity in a way. And that's the other thing too is, is that, you know, I know it's time consuming for folks, but 
especially for folks in the disability community. Um, some, some of us who are, are young and just getting into employment for the first time, it's nice to have other folks mentor us mm-hmm. um, because you don't just come into a workplace and be like, yep, I know what to do. Been here before, done this, done that. Yeah, this is a weird one for me because I feel yeah. like if I know that I make mistakes, mm-hmm. well, and especially with a resume or a, a cover letter, I would, if I really care about the job, well, anytime, <laughs> I mean, yeah. why are you yes. applying if yeah, you don't yeah. care? I, I would have somebody look it over, especially if yeah. I, you know, like for me, it's formatting. I might've accidentally indented and, you know, I didn't mean yes. to, or I cut and paste something. And so the font is different on that section. I'm not going to catch that. So yeah, if I know it matters, then I have somebody look it over before I submit. Um, and but I understand. Is, is that a moment of privilege though? That's what you have to ask yourself. Hmm. do you have the privilege of having someone in your life that can do that? Yeah. Cause not everybody does. Right. And so this is a constant reminder for me about where my own privilege lies. Um, Cause we all, all of us, even as equity seeking folks have some level of privilege. So I, you know, it's, it's when I, when I cross these situations, cause I too, my first, my first inclination is not detail oriented. Or, mm-hmm. or when the, or when the, when the submission says, please send a cover letter and a resume and they don't send the cover letter mm-hmm. and you wonder why. So my new practice now is to, to reach out and say, by the way, um, would you like to submit a cover letter as per the, um, application requirements or requests? If you don't hear back, you don't hear back. If you do, I mean, it could just be a processing thing. It could be an access technology thing that they missed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there could be something who's somebody who's got real great skills and potential and just needs a little opportunity to be able to groom those sharper. Are there things an employer can do in the interview to be more inclusive? I mean, the basic thing is, is that basically based on human rights, there are certain things that you are allowed to and not allowed to ask. Ooh, yes. Go yeah, there. Yes. This is, this is true <laughs> of every person. So for example, if um, I, I've had this discussion with my own mother where, where she goes into an interview and, and somebody says, do you have children? And she thinks, should I answer that? Because if I tell them that my children are close to 40, mm-hmm. that's going to give away my age. Right. And there's ageism in place, right? So you can't ask things leading questions like that. Um, this is the same when I go in for an audition and the, the director says, well, how would you navigate the stage? Well, you can't ask me that actually. Um, that's my business. You just have to trust that I can do that. So as an employer, we can't ask the how people get things done. Um, we can potentially ask things like, for example, if I was interviewing you, Sean, I might say, Sean, if you were successful in getting this position, what things could we put in place that would make this inclusive and accessible for you? And you might say, well, um, I'd like to work from home two days a week or, you know, a transportation stipend might help or whatever it is that you need. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not me asking you how you do things. How do you, cause I, that's what, how do you use a photocopier? Well, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you, right. Not really any of your business. And if you're interested in hiring somebody, you will embrace that. And as they do their onboarding, you walk them through that. I mean, you and I know that we just memorize where the buttons are on the phone, mm-hmm. you know, like, <laughs> and a lot of photocopiers these days go directly from your printer. Right. on your computer and it goes right to the photocopier. So I don't have to go there and lift a lid and magnify things and press the button, you know? 
I think that's a good rule to consider. If you wouldn't ask a, an able-bodied or sighted person, that question, don't ask it to us either. Yep. And, yeah. and I mean, strictly speaking, you are legally not allowed to ask that, but most, most, um, interviewees or candidates, mm -hmm. especially those with disabilities don't understand or know that that's not a question that's to be asked. And that's a scary thing, right? Cause I'm in an, I'm in a position as somebody who's being interviewed and you're the authority. Yes. And so if somebody says, well, how do you do this? It, you can feel obligated to say, oh, I've got to answer that question or I'm not going to get the job. Well, not to mention, we're also asked questions, personal questions all the time oh, in the world. Right. So we're so used to it that we're just like, oh, here's another person. <laughs> that's, that's, that's totally true. Right. Totally true. And some of these questions are, are really, are really harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, cause if you imagine the idea of, um, being asked something every day, that's harmful to you as an individual, you start to carry the weight of that. Yes. Um, and that's, that's traumatizing to an individual and can change their self-perception and self-worth. And we experience that all the time as people with disabilities, you know, from the, how do you make breakfast in the morning? And you're like, come on, seriously, mm -hmm. seriously, you're gonna ask me that. Right. I mean, I must get asked that a hundred times a day. I feel like when I'm out on transit, it's, it's so interesting to everybody. Yes, I know. <laughs> like, it is you, what it is. I do. How do you dress you yourself? Do. I know. Yeah. Right? You look so nice. How did you match your clothes? Mm -hmm. okay. Right. Yeah. So don't ask that in an interview either. <laughs> how did you manage to put that outfit together today? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, what about like offering to guide somebody into the room or what would you suggest as an employer? Mm-hmm. Like just they're, they're showing up for the interview and you see, they have a white cane or a guide dog. Mm -hmm. do, do you offer, do you not offer what, what, how would you handle that? So this is what I say to everybody, regardless of whether they're an employee or an employer or a volunteer or whatever their position is, there is kind of a, a model ask, listen, and act. Um, and if you recognize, um, you know, what you're seeing as maybe somebody who could use some support, I always say, ask them you know, and, and, and identify who you are. You know, I'm so-and-so I work for blind beginnings. I've noticed you have a white cane. Um, can I, can I offer you an arm into the room? That person may say, no, nope, I can follow. That person may say, yes, please. I'd love an arm. Whatever they say, respect what they say and don't protest it. Right. If they say no, don't be like, oh, are you sure? Cause mm -hmm. I'm here for you. Right. Like respect what the answer is. And I always think that ask, listen, and act is the best motto. Um, and I also always tell people, and this is like a real, a realism in the disability bubble. If you get asked some, if you get asked, do you need help a thousand times a day? And you're somebody who really doesn't, that is like a, it's like a crunch point, right? It's a pain mm -hmm. point for you. Um, so some people are going to respond very curtly and very sharp, but I, I, I want to encourage folks to not let that keep them from saying, to, from asking the next person. Because that next person might actually really need some support. But I think it comes with what your intentions are. And I know what somebody's intentions are when they come up to me and they ask whether their intentions are really to be just another citizen of the world or whether their intentions are to be, you, you know, like, I don't know, I don't have time for you, but I'm going to offer you my arm or you're just another cripple walking around this planet. You know what I mean? Like you can sense that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and intention means a lot to me. So even <laughs> I do, I've done this sometimes, even when I don't need assistance, if somebody does all the right things to ask, 
I will say, sure, I'll take your arm across the street. Because I kind of want to reinforce, and the educator in me wants to reinforce that behavior, right? It's like, you've done this right. This was respectful and honorable and, and not judgmental or, or degrading, because that's what we want to avoid is somebody feeling degraded. Mm-hmm. Um, if they've done those things, even if I don't need the help and I've got the time, I might just take their arm and walk across the street with them or into the room with them. Right. It shouldn't, um, from the perspective of the candidate, if you, if you say, yes, please, I'd like an arm, that is not a disqualifier for the job. So I would hate for somebody who is blind to think, yes, I asked for an arm, which means I'm not going to get the job because you're going to think I can't do this myself. Oh, I definitely used to feel that way. Like I better not be guided. I, I need to be, yeah, I just, I need to show my independence. Otherwise they're going to think I'm dependent. So this is something I did. Um, I was recently in a stage production when I did my audition. Um, you know, the, the director was very respectful, respectful and, and asked me about, you know, if I was successful in getting the role, what it was that, that, that the company could do to make that more inclusive. And so I gave her just a few little nuggets. Um, and I said, and when I get the role, when I get the role, <laughs> we can have a deeper conversation about this um, because I have some great strategies in place to be able to be very successful. And so, and then I got the role and then we had a conversation about this. And I said, look, the first couple of days in the space, I'm going to need some things. I'm going to need, you know, some orientation around the room. I'm going to need people to say their names before they speak. So I can get familiar with who's in the space and where, you know, I'm going to need people to not say things like, oh, go over there. Your mark is over there. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm going to need real specific directions. I said, but I, I know this, I've done this before. I'm confident that once that's in my body, I know where those places are. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing for everybody. Once you get in a work environment for the first day, you're like, oh, how do I get to the bathroom from my desk? Mm-hmm. And then by the second or third day, you know how to find it. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? So it maybe takes a, you know, a couple of days to a week for you to get oriented. Um, and that's a really open conversation you have with your employer. And believe you me, employers appreciate that, but you do that after you're hired, not before. Okay, let's talk about the work environment. Now the person yeah. has been hired. Yeah, yeah. What are some things employers should be aware of in order to be and in order to create an inclusive working environment? Right. Um, So the first thing I think about is um, having the dialogue. So and this doesn't just apply for folks that live with disability. This is a part of a bit of a bit of in tandem with the whole idea of decolonizing the workplace, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, like who created this? idea that we have to work from 9 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. and we get a two 15 minutes and a half hour break. Like, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Um, where statistically we have seen that after about five hours of work, you're pretty much not able to comprehend a lot of stuff and your work tends to literally suffer for that. Um, so you're not working at a good capacity anyways and you just stress people out. Um, So why would we want to do that? So, you know, I think basically it's being open to the discussion. Um, And I think, you know, like I think about this all the time with other folks, like smokers, for example, how many breaks does a smoker take in a day? (laughs) Yes. They're smoking every 15 minutes, right? Um, Whereas I'm not a smoker. So I wait and I take my hour break and I do my thing and I come back and I'm very like air quotes, respectful of the rules. Mm -hmm. But if we give folks um, the opportunity to have the discussion where it says, you know what? every two hours, I need to disengage for about 20 minutes, I need to go and get just some fresh air, I need to grab a coffee, I need to, you know, it's really, I think we need to focus on being a little bit more task oriented, as opposed to time clock, Mm 
oriented. So if you've got five tasks in a day that you need to, do to get done, you need to, as an individual, be able to self-manage yourself in order to get those done. Um, and so if that means that you take, you know, I don't know, a series of 15 minute breaks throughout the day, instead of a one hour break, then maybe that's, you know, how we can support somebody, especially when you're living with disability in Europe, maybe have a medication schedule, or maybe have, um, you know, I wear an insulin pump. So every once in a while, I have to go and like, check my blood sugar and do a whole bunch of other things that, you know, mm -hmm. other folks aren't doing. But if I don't do those things, the consequences of those are both detrimental to my health, but also to my, my, my working schedule, mm -hmm. um, and, and the capacity to which I can do my work. So the discussion is number one for me. And that discussion is unique for everybody. I had somebody once in the, uh, in the workplace say, well, I have a small bladder. So I have to pee like every half an hour. <laughs> Am I allowed to do that? And it's like, what do you mean? Are you allowed to do that? Of course, if you need to go do that, do that. Right. Right. Um, and some workplaces are just too stringent on that. And this, you know, this idea of working from home, um, which has been a silver lining again of the pandemic, not to oversimplify some of the mm -hmm. real, you know, tragedies and hardships that people have gone through, but this ability to work from home has meant that folks can manage their day-to-day -day lives and working at the same time. So you can put a load of laundry in and have that going while you're doing your work. Mm -hmm. um, and you're not feeling so stressed when it comes to dinner time because stuff's been done during the day. And it's not like you're coming home and then having to start a whole other full-time job. Um, yeah, I was thinking about the, the lunch break. We're supposed to take half an hour lunch break. I tend not to. And you, you just went right through it. I just, yeah, I just keep going and eat. Yeah. while I go, but, but part of the reason is I'd rather leave half an hour earlier because it takes me an hour to get home. I also have a child that needs to be picked up at daycare. And, you know, if you've got that big, long commute on both ends of your day, yep. I don't want to waste half an hour. <laughs> I'd but, rather work through and then yes. go home a bit earlier. So. But I think that's what the discussion is, right? Yeah. If that's what works for you. Mm -hmm. then that's fantastic. You have the flexibility to offer that. So maybe you have another potential employee who says the same thing mm -hmm. um, and you say, okay, you know what? We can manage that. Yeah. Um, it's a one size fits one kind of work environment <laughs> sometimes. How do you deal with though, like a bigger team where maybe one person wants to work through lunch, but another person needs to take a lunch or multiple breaks or like, so that coworkers aren't feeling like, well, that person seems kind of lazy and that person's overworking and, you know, not really sure in within the culture, what they're supposed to do. Yeah. I think culture is exactly what it is. This is this is how you set up an organization's culture. So, you know, what, what we've done at the arts club, for example, um, and, um, it's a bit of a, a new kind of working environment for me, but I really have appreciated it. Um, as I go through some of my own health challenges and start to think to myself, uh Oh, is my job at jeopardy because, um, I have to take time off to have an ultrasound and a CT and an MRI and all of these things that are kind of a part of, or could be a part of the lived experience of disability. Um, and, and my direct boss who says to me, I'm not your boss, we're a team. And I, oh, okay. That's great. Mm. <laughs> you still hired me. <laughs> so in right. my mind, you're my boss. Yeah. No, we're a team literally just said to me earlier today, when we were talking about this stuff, he said, you know what, take the time you need. Don't worry about making up hours. I want you to not be stressed. So 
you know, you've got your list of things, you've got your deadlines. If those things need to be reimagined, then let's have that discussion. So it's a continuous discussion. And every team meeting, we do a check-in. Um, you know, where are you today? How was your, has your week been? Um, we're a small team. Uh, and when it comes to um, like team meetings, we have talked about them as a group, what the best time of day is for everybody to be able to do that. And we carve out two hours, you know, once a week to have our team meeting as well. Um, and we've all agreed on that. So it's not like a, and, and I work through lunch sometimes too, in order to, and I'm working from home in order right. to say yeah. to myself, yeah, you know what? I'd like to just stop working at four o'clock today. You know, I just feel like I'm going to take the afternoon off, but I've done my tasks for the day um, or managing my tasks even for the week, because when you're working at home and you have a position like that, it doesn't matter to them whether I'm doing something at four in the morning. So if I'm designing a training module, which I've done several of them, I can do that anytime, mm -hmm. right? It just needs to be done by the day we do the training. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, it's this ability to work at my own pace, to manage my own access needs within the workplace, which is again, a part of their de decolonizing practices. And they're not perfect either. I'm not saying that at all, but it is an interesting way of looking at how we, how we manage that and how that impacts the individual who's working for us in terms of how long they stay with the organization but also in terms of like, I don't ever have to feel guilty about, oh, I had to make a dentist appointment and it's going to be in the middle of the day, mm -hmm. you know, because they're like, yeah, do that. That needs to be done. It's important. And I didn't have to worry about taking time off when I was on the stage. Yeah, yeah. You're an artist. <laughs> We're an arts organization. Go do your thing. Right. Oh, that's cool. uh, and I just, I totally wasn't prepared for that. And the, it, my, even my own anxiety was like, uh oh, do I have to give up my job if I get this role? Mm -hmm. And when I talk to them about it, they're like, no, no, no. If you get a, you know, a role on a TV show and you got to go to Winnipeg for two months, that's not a deal breaker for us. We just work around it. Right. Wow. Wow. It's pretty cool. Um, again, they're cool. not perfect either, but it's about at the end, at the, at the beginning of the day, not even at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, it's about the conversation. It's about having a group of people where you just have their backs and, and they have this philosophy of, um, kind of like, if you need to cry, go have a cry. And I, I had never thought about this before, but sometimes you just need to like, take a step back and examine something and just have your little moment. And they so embrace that as part of the process, because if you, if you're stuck there, you can't move on. You can't get anything done. You're not productive. That's true. So it's, it's, it's live in the moment. And then the work stuff, the work stuff, it just happens organically. Um, and when you build that culture, you really see folks thrive there. We have, you know, you have your ch each other's back, like you do on, on a stage and somebody drops their line and you're like, I was listening. I can pick that one up, you know? Mm. Yeah. I I've been guilty of, uh, working at six in the morning and sending mm -hmm. emails to my team mm -hmm. and I'm technically the boss. And I, I think I feel like it's making people sometimes feel I don't know, pressure that they should, I don't know, or, or I'll send something in the evening and then, you know, sometimes I'll get a response and I feel like, oh no, I didn't want you to respond. Like I'm not emailing you at 7 PM because I expect a response. I'm just still working. <laughs> so have you, heard, have you heard of this thing called, um, the right to disengage? No the right to disengage. Um, as I understand it started from like lawyers, uh, and accountants and people who were working from home before the pandemic, but often had businesses at home. Um, 
And we're getting, like you were saying, getting, you know, emails at seven or eight o'clock at night and wondering, am I obligated to respond to this? Cause it's mm-hmm. eight o'clock at night. And so the right to disengage was, was, is the individual's right to say, uh, uh-uh, after five o'clock, I ain't answering nothing no more. It can wait till the next day. So again, this is about culture and it's about conversation. So I too, Sean, you know this about me. I'm sending emails at all times of the day. <laughs> yes. Um, because sometimes I work really well at four in the morning because I get up and I have a brain spurt and it just needs to get out mm-hmm. or I'm not going to be able to get back to sleep. And so what I tell folks in, in you know, my working environments is you're going to get emails from me all times of day. That's how I process. It's not my expectation of how you need to process. And as long as that conversation is had, then the ex- it's, it's about managing the expectations. Right. So when you see Sean's email at eight at night, you're like, okay, I know that this is just because this is where her brain is right now and she needs to just get it out mm-hmm. and I can look at it tomorrow morning. And if it were to be something super urgent, you would probably say, oh my gosh, the world is coming to an end. This is urgent. <laughs> you know, right. when yeah. you get this, can you respond? But um, that is not usually the case. How do you... I mean, when do you have this conversation with new people and how do you not worry that you'll be taken advantage of as an employer if you have so much flexibility and accommodation and whatever? Yep. Yep. Um, I, th- I say, you know, you always have the conversation at the beginning when somebody is onboarding, but you continue to have these conversations um, you know, they're, they're regular check-ins, whether um, they're before each meeting or, um, again, this is how we build culture and how we build community. And the more vulnerable we can be with each other about our access needs, whether they're because we have small bladders or because we're having trouble with headaches today or whatever the case may be, we can start to give each other space. Um, and I think at the end of the day, the taking advantage part, truly, there are very few people in the world that do that. Um, statistically speaking, we all, we as human beings leap to that conclusion but I think what you, what we need to focus on is, is the quality of work is the work. like, is this person constantly like not getting tasks done on time? Um, and I find oftentimes what's really helpful, certainly for me, but for the majority of people is clear deadlines. Mm-hmm. So if, if, even if my employer today says to me, well, you know, we need you to, to do a, 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 a training session on sighted guide. Um, great. By when please. Um, because if I know that I'm working towards this being done in two weeks, then I can have that, I can manage my time and build that into the other things that I'm doing to get that done. Mm-hmm. So then as, as the, as the boss, um, you look at that and you say, okay, did, did Amy actually get this done? And was the work quality work, um, a quality of what, you know, what, what I expect, um, uh, of this task. And if it isn't, then you have to have a conversation about expectations. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe they don't know what your expectations are, or maybe the, the employer hasn't made their expect, ex- expectations clear of the employee. And again, if we can manage expectations, that's like 50% of the battle um, is just understanding where each other is coming from. And then it's about the discussion. If this task is getting difficult for you, let me know how I can support you. Um, and we, we have, I've done this a million times in another arts organization that I'm working with, we've hired a new artistic director who lives with a disability and they were finding that the, you know, 40 to 32 hours a week rather was getting difficult for them to manage with their, with their disability. Okay. 
they came to the organization and they said, I need some support. And I, this could be temporary. It could be moving forward. How can we do this? And so we brought in a, a 10 hour a week assistant to support them in that work. And their work has gotten so much stronger because they have that extra support in place. So it's a total benefit to the organization that this mm. person felt comfortable being able to say, this is what I, I need in this moment. Right. And then you have the discussion. Right. Cool. Okay. How about working space? Um, are there considerations office sharing or just like, do they need, well, and <laughs> this is a bit, some of these questions I do know the answer to, yeah. but <laughs> you're the expert today. So let's oh, talk about that. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, again, I, 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 I philosophize to the one size fits one motto. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's hard, you know, you can, you can preemptively think about, you know, from a disability perspective, like what do we have stairs or do we have ramps? You know, how, how easily accessible is the space from a physical perspective, um, for a a group of folks that are in the blind community, you know, are things tactily labeled that need to be labeled? Not, not in a way that's like, this is ridiculous. Overload information. Why did you label the toilet paper roll? I don't need that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we don't want to be condescending about it. Yes. But you know, are certain things labeled that need to be labeled in order to you know facilitate your day to day tasks? Or for folks that aren't in the office on a day to day basis that may think, "Geez, it's been a while since I've been here. How do I get from A to B again?" Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so teaching those those skills, and, and you you already do this. You already know how to do this. Um, I, I like to think that folks that are working in a co-working um, opportunity where they're maybe job sharing or working close to each other are, are in offices or in, are clo- in close proximity when they're working in the workplace because it is so much easier, as you know, to just turn to somebody and be like, yo, I need, I need, I need your ear on this. You know, mm-hmm. this is the sentence I can't work out or, you know, does this sound right to you? It doesn't quite sound right to me. It's not how I want to articulate it. Um, and those kind of moments are great in a working environment. Um, and then it's really just about um, what the individual needs on top of that. So like I've worked with some folks that have needed to be in, in closer proximity to washrooms than other folks. Um, I've, I've known some people who have had anxiety disorders that have needed to be closer to a window that opens. Mm. Um, and so it's, again, it's about having this conversation because this individual that lives with anxiety was really, really like able to thrive in the workplace, but only if they had a window that, that could open. Otherwise they were so almost in their words, paralyzed by their anxiety that they couldn't get anything done. Right. Right. And so, but like, what, it, that's a, that's a, that's a air quotes, simple solve. It's a simple solve. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we don't have those conversations and we don't allow folks to be who they are in our spaces, so they feel like they're being judged or they feel like their jobs are on the line, then we haven't fostered, in my opinion, we haven't fostered that, that culture of inclusion. Yes. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about software. Now this is, this is a big one for me. Uh, we are trying to, um, start using Salesforce. It is accessible. It's one of the few database management softwares that actually upgrades when JAWS upgrades. So that's the Mm -hmm. screen reader I use, but I am not a fan of learning new software. (laughs) Me Me neither. It's hard. Now, 
I'm the one that pushed for Salesforce because it does need to be accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet I avoid using it. I avoid learning it. I, and I, I feel guilty about it. And I'm just using me as an example in this situation because I can, but <laughs> where is the line for somebody you know, is it an expectation that every person on the team can use the software, especially if it is like, it's different. And I think partly it's that so often in a workplace environment, there is software that isn't accessible. And I've in some ways gotten a pass on having to figure it out because it just wasn't going to work for me anyway. So I'd be in a situation where I'd be like, can you look up this phone number for me? Or can you find this person's email address? And I'd have to ask somebody. Mm -hmm. And now I'm so in the habit of doing that, that I still do it instead of using the software to look it up myself. Right. And, and I think I'm in the wrong here. And I think I do need to put the effort in as the person with the disability to learn the darn accessible software. But what do you think about that? Well, you know, again, this is the difference uh, in some ways of the difference of, of access versus inclusion, um, you know, and, and, and user friendliness. So whereas something is, is accessible and like we talk about this with sometimes Excel, sometimes with Google Forms, um, uh, that yes, they innately are accessible, but what if you're somebody who's a screen reader user and you've never used it before? Mm-hmm. Um, how challenging is that? How steep a learning curve is that? For some people, they pick up technology really, really quickly. I do not. Yeah. Um, so I find that challenging too. And this is again, where culture becomes really, really, really important. Um, and there are some things, you know, in, in my work environment now that are, are probably accessible, um, but I have a lot of tasks on the go. And so sometimes I say to my team, yeah, you know, um, I've, I've, I've done sort of some preliminary tests and it's relatively accessible. However, I just don't have the capacity right now to be able to yes. navigate that. And yes, that's a real thing, Sean, right? It's a trade-off. It's like, do right? you want me to stop working on these uh, creating these programs so that I can do this one password thing that everyone's waiting for me to do and, or learn how to use Salesforce? Or do you want me to just carry on and do these other 18 yeah. things I need to get done? Yeah. And so maybe there's a culture where you're like, okay, certain people have certain skill sets and that's totally cool. And as you are going, maybe you'll pick up more and more of how to use Salesforce until the day where you're like, you know what? I got this. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, you're part of a team. You're not working in silos, right? And so this mm. idea of being a part of a team is, um, yes, I want you to spend time, you know, if you've got a new hire, I want you to spend time exploring Salesforce, but I don't want you to feel like that's contingent on you being here, right? Like let that, let somebody let that pressure go and you'll find that they'll learn things faster when they don't feel the pressure of, oh my God, I'll be fired tomorrow if I don't learn this. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's right. with everything. Like there are some people in, in, in where I work or where I have worked over the years that don't know how to use Excel. They're not blind people. They just don't know how to use Excel because mm-hmm. unless, you know, you know, equals plus some, this, whatever, you don't yeah. know how to use it. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a steep learning curve for some. So I don't think that those things are contingent on the, on, on the job requirements, unless for some reason they really, really are like, Am I being hired as an accountant? Probably not, because I don't have a CPA designation. But you would expect that somebody who works with numbers all the, all day long can use these softwares, right? Right. right um, but for somebody that's coming in learning technology, I think we give them the space to be able to learn that at their level of capacity. 
Well, the other challenge, if you are using assistive technology, is that the way you use it is not how everyone else uses it. So it's not that simple to just be like, hey, Rob, how do I access this? Or what's the command for that? Because he's doing it with a mouse and a click and I'm not, right? So. And what I've discovered too is because I'm not a JAWS user, but I've been using Narrator on Windows, which is not as sophisticated Mm -hmm. um, as JAWS or NVDA. Um, So I'm often dependent mostly on like left arrow, right arrow, up arrow, down arrow, and some real simple navigation keys, as opposed to, you know, know, him hitting control alt F7 to get something. Um, And so, you know, when you've got to keep those key strokes in your brain, that's a lot of memory power that you're using, considering that you're also storing in there, like really important navigation, like information of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so this, like, again, when I do my, when I do my training sessions around the disability experience, I say to folks things like, don't expect me to recognize your voice all the time. Cause once one it, it's contextual, like if I see you on the SkyTrain station, I may yes. not recognize your voice. You know, this well, Yes. and I've got a lot of stuff in my brain. Like I have to remember how to get home and sighted people. And this is not a disrespect to sighted folks, but you walk down the street and you go, yes, I'm on the corner of Georgia and Granville. I know exactly where I am where I'm counting blocks to find out where my next bus stop is. And if you're holding that in your brain, that's a lot to hold, right? So this idea of understanding just a a small portion of the disability experience when you don't live with disability is is huge in terms of context and understanding how people can work, how they can um, manage capacity, how they can build capacity and how they can use... um, how they can be most effective in the job. And then, and then when, when, when they're having moments where, you know, you may think they're not being effective, that's a moment where you'd like check your own privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Like what, did I get a ride here this morning? Maybe that's why I'm a little bit more on the ball this morning or, you know, those kinds of things. And, and it's a constant reminder. It's a constant reminder um, of recognizing where you are as a human and recognizing where others are around you as a human. And, and at its core, Sean, for me, that, that starts with the, the, the culture of having the conversation. This is a place where we can have these conversations and nobody needs to feel judged or scared that they're going to lose their employment. Um, that's, a, that's a huge part of, of building a new inclusive environment in the workplace. Okay. It's hard work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's funny you were talking about recognizing voices and it it made me remember that one day my dad drove by in a car and was yelling out the window, hi, Sean. And I must've had this puzzled look on my face because he's like, it's dad. That happened to me too. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't in a, it was my neighborhood, not his. I didn't know he was in the neighborhood. I didn't expect him to be there. So I totally happened. And I I came across my dad in a space like that too. And he was like, Hey, how's it going? And I was like, who is this stranger? (laughs) Well, you kind of like, it's familiar, but you can't, you know, you just can't pinpoint who it it is. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're not in your (laughs) living room. So I don't know who you are right now. So funny, but isn't that the big assumption, right? That all blind folks recognize voices. Oh, well, I'm pretty darn good, but like out of context. Yeah. Out of context. Totally, totally different. In the workplace, you expect to hear certain people that you work with every day. Right. Exactly. But you, you know, if, if a colleague of yours, I don't know, showed up at your front door to deliver a package, you'd be like, huh? I wasn't expecting (laughs) you. Yeah. The male person sounds a little familiar, but not. (laughs) Right. 
Okay. So is there anything that employers can do to facilitate positive interactions amongst coworkers? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yes, sure. There is culture is one. The discussion is one. I think we've talked about those already. Team building is also really important. So when do we take time to just do stuff as a team that's not work-related? When we start to build relationships with people that we work with, um, we bond with them and they become a little bit like a family. Again, this is something that's really integral when you're an actor and you're on stage with a group of folks. You become a family um, and you need that family interaction in order to thrive and to do your job the best that you can. And I think that translates to the workplace as well. So are we doing like a dinner of the month club and we're all gonna go have dinner? I, I guess this is maybe not in a COVID world, but you know what I'm saying? What are the kinds of things that we do together as a group that build community within the office? I think those things are super important in fostering inclusivity in general. Um, And then I would, I always encourage folks to continue doing their own professional development. And that is not only about what's happening in your organization or company, but what's happening in the world. So I spend a lot of time, even though my wheelhouse is access and inclusion, I spend a lot of time taking webinars on anti-racism, um, on anti-Asian hate, on decolonization, on LGBTQ2 plus um, initiatives and community, you know, um, social adjustment movements, mm-hmm. because I want to be an ally to these communities. And I want to be able to be an ally in the workplace when I have people that I'm working with that have a different lived experience than I do. And we intersect at all, at all levels, right? Like you, you can be a, a person with a disability and also be a member of the LGBTQ2 plus community and also be indigenous, mm-hmm. right? So we can, mm-hmm. we can come to our, 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 um, our identities in many different intersections. And I think as humans, if we want to be allies and inclusive of other, what I refer, I like the term equity seeking folks, as opposed to marginalized, I feel like marginalized sounds like a negative and equity seeking mm. sounds like a positive. Yeah. I <laughs> but, like that. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, you know, this is, and, and, and I do a lot of like, as you know, uh, conversations around language and how, cause I really think that, uh, I really think that unconscious bias to some extent can be deprogrammed a little bit by changing language. Um, because oftentimes we use language and it impacts on our unconscious bias, right? And you know, I've talked about the word impaired before. It's like, mm-hmm. if folks see me as impaired before they know me, even if they're not thinking about it consciously, unconsciously, unconsciously, there's a, there's a correlation there. Um, and so even if we just tweak our language a little bit, um, and we're seeing this big time in anti-racism, we're seeing this big time in decolonization, there's no reason why this, this doesn't apply to folks that live with disability. But, you know, when we take the word handicapped out of the equation, then all of a sudden folks with disabilities are empowered and they're empowered by society. And what we've done is we've changed the landscape of disability from you're broken and you need to be fixed to, hey, that staircase is a problem, Mm -hmm. right? It's the difference between a a medical model and a social model of disability where it's it's the environment that is handicapping you and you're not the handicap, right? Like there's a difference in the language. And I really think that if we if we start to change how we think and how we speak about people, we are empowering ourselves and empowering them. And that's part of inclusivity. This is like, you know, 
I learned this and it's now part of my practice as a human, as a, as a human. Um, when when I, I took a, a workshop um, led by some community members who identified as part of the LGBTQ2 plus community. And um, it, it was a, a, a trans person that was sharing about the, the term guys. When you say, hey, you guys, mm-hmm. hey, you guys. And, and they said quite plainly that if you don't identify with that term, that can be quite harmful to you to be referred to every day as a guy when you really identify as either being non-binary or female. Like it's, and we, that term has become part of our vernacular. It's not meant, it's, it's what we call a microaggression. It's not meant to do any harm, but for some people can be really triggering. So I no longer say you guys, I use folks, I use friends, I use everyone. I keep it gender neutral because I don't know who's in my spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's even more important to me as a blind person is because I could be standing right beside somebody who I know identifies with they, them program pronouns, but I don't know they're standing beside me. And here I am saying, Hey, you guys, and that's impacting them. And I, I don't need to use that word. Mm-hmm. I don't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm starting to learn a lot more about language and other equity seeking groups, um, which has impacted myself personally and how I am a better ally to them, I think. And that's also how we foster inclusivity is just stepping outside of what we know as our own lived experience and try and understand a little bit about somebody else's. We do actually shameless plug for blind beginnings. Uh, I love it. Have, we have a diversity and inclusion committee now that started about a year ago, I think. Uh, so we are working on doing the work. that learning as well. Um, and also we do team building activities at every staff meeting and we have staff meetings once a week. So we've, and, and monthly lunch and learns. So we go together, have lunch, somebody shares a learning with the team. Yeah. Yeah. So even through COVID inclusion. Yeah. It's been fun. Actually. I do feel like we are a little family, which is lovely. Right. You you just, you, you approach the work differently when you know your, when you know your family's involved, the stakes are higher. The stakes feel higher. There's way less drama with this family than my actual. too yeah I totally get that that's right come home and the drama begins that's right (laughs) like I wish I was at work right now um I have on my list of questions any suggestions for making staff meetings more inclusive one thing that comes to mind for me is if there's snacks you better well tell me they're there Yes. Or please don't, don't, you know, point me to a seat that has somebody in it or somebody's bag on it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that happens. I, I tend to find that when I'm in a staff meeting, it's like, I have my own seat and it's my seat every time. And, yes. <laughs> and it yes. just becomes the default. Um, and so, and I like that. I mm-hmm. like knowing, cause I, too, I think a part of, of my low vision is that I, I like that the routine of that. Um, and again, like, are we making space for that is the question. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's again, a part of inclusivity. So if you know that Amy likes the, the, t- the chair on the far left, because that means she can use her small amount of partial to see the most a- around the table, um, then let her have the seat. Like what's the big deal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also, you know, it's, it's the same thing when, um, you know, we've again, work with some folks that are wheelchair users and heavy doors to open and close. And it's like, well, let's just prop the door open that way. Mm-hmm. If somebody needs to leave for the bathroom, they don't have to be like, hi, can you open the door for me so I can get out? Like, how degrading is that? Yeah. So it takes a little bit of forethought to just be able to put some of these things in places. And again, this is why I say when people aren't working in our environments, we forget about them. Um, because you wouldn't think about that unless you had a wheelchair user in your environment. 
right? Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that these aren't other things that can be done. So I think, again, this idea of, of playing games is really, really lovely. One of, the, one of my favorite ones actually is, um, and it's accessible to folks who are blind, is sharing the origin of your name. Um, and, and we do this as part of a, a cast building um, exercise as well. But if you get to say, you know, like I would say, my, my name is Amy and, and my parents, you know, heard this song called Once in the Love with Amy before I was born. And Amy actually needs a mickable, which is supposed to be likable. And I hope I live up to that. You know what I mean? And you just right. go on and on about your name and where your name's from and the origin of your name. And you really get to learn a lot about people. Um, the other thing that I like if I'm, if for me as a blind person, if I'm in an environment of folks who are new, I like to know the diversity in the room because the default for us in the blind community has been set up as white able-bodied. This is a construct that was set up in audio description from the time audio description began. So if you start to listen closely to just your audio description, people are just a woman or a man unless they're a black woman or an Asian, yes, right? Yes. So the default is always white. And this has kind of been ingrained in us, but it's not inclusive. It's not representative of our population. And so um, you know, there's a common, especially in, in Zoom environments, but there's this common thing that's happening to do self-descriptions. And mm -hmm. so people will say things like, oh, I'm wearing a checkered shirt and I have long black hair and a, you know, ponytail to the left and my socks are pink and I have polka dotted shoelaces. And I'm like, I don't care, <laughs> you know, like, unless you're coming to this panel discussion in a clown costume, you know, <laughs> keep it contextual that I want to know. But if, you know, if you're just wearing your street, your civvies, I don't need to know that. But what's really important to me is how you identify. So if somebody says to me, I identify as an Asian Canadian, great. Then I'm not making any assumptions. And I was in a space just the other day with somebody, a good friend of mine, actually, that I've known for a while. And his name, his last name is Wiley. And he's an Asian Canadian. And I was like, what? I had no idea. Mm -hmm. I had no idea because I too, just like everybody, we make assumptions. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and this person is, you know, first or second generation Canadian now, so doesn't have, um, an immigrant's accent of any kind. And so I fell into the whole, okay, he's a white person. Cause the last name is Wiley. Like that sounds white to me, but he's not, <laughs> he's a person of color. So I don't want to live in a world where I'm making assumptions. Um, so I always invite that in all in, in everything that I do. And it's a huge thing in the arts world. If you spend any time in, in the arts, going to panel discussions, um, the self-description thing, but the idea of, I don't, you know, cause by the time 30 people describe themselves, I have forgotten what the person before looks like. It doesn't matter. I don't know. I don't care what's in their background. I don't, <laughs> it's That's interesting, Amy, me. cause I actually, I've, I've only experienced it twice in really ever. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm not in those spaces very often, but I, I do kind of like it. Cause I am so curious what people look like. I don't really care what's in their background. I don't care if they're pets in the room behind, like, I don't care about that, but I do like, Oh, what color hair do you have? And what, Oh, you've got gray in your hair. So you, you know, I can make some guesses on age or ethnicity or any of those things. Like I do it does fill in a lot of the blanks for me, but maybe if I was dealing with it every single day and maybe if it was like a really large group, that would get a bit much, but if it's it like five much. people, not a problem. It gets much. And for some people, what I've heard is, is that it's quite condescending. Some people find it very condescending, uh, um, which is not something that I had really spent a lot of time contemplating until I started getting this kind of feedback. 
Hmm. Um, and that for some people it's a lot, you know, they feel obligated to hold this in their head. And then Hmm. after we've introduced these 12 people, we're going to talk about anti-racism and you're like, Oh gosh, I don't have space to hold that conversation right now because I'm still remembering that, you know, Jane Doe has a pink sweater and blue shoelaces. (laughs) Uh, Right. So I, I, I always encourage people to just keep things contextual. Um, and I think that hair color and, and whether they wear glasses or not like that, I think that's totally, totally cool to share. I just don't need the details of all your clothes. And, um, mm. you know, I, I've got three paintings behind me. One of them is a mountain and there's a right. Yeah. And it's like, I, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and it takes up time and it fills space in my head. And, um, mm. you know, I, I get that people are coming from the best place of inclusivity, but I think there's, you know, to try again, to try and be this, this, um, I guess this borderline of a little bit for everybody, right? You know, you kind of have to find places to give a little more and take a little back because, you know, but that's, mm-hmm. you know, you're never going to please hundred percent of people hundred percent of the time. That's a, that's a reality. So I always go into those, unless I'm teaching about it, I always go into those with the, with the, with the best of intentions that folks have the best of intentions. And, and the truth is, is that it's, it's not only for blind folk. Like there are some folks that access zoom meetings, for example, that don't have access to their cameras. They're calling in on their phones Mm-hmm. And they're not seeing other people. And so it's good for them also to know who's in the space and, and how they identify and, yeah. you know, a little self-description if they want to have that. So it's, um, and the other thing that's becoming really inclusive, um, again, this isn't in lots of arts environments, whether we have folks in our space that identify with different pronouns or not, we always share pronouns. Mm-hmm. Because what I've learned is that it's the obligation of folks who um, are, are cisgendered. So that, that means, uh, identify with the, the body you were assigned, the gender you were assigned at birth. Um, so I was, was assigned female at birth. I identify as a female. Um, it makes me a cisgendered woman. Uh, I use she, her pronouns, and it's my obligation to make a safe space for others who don't use she, her, or he, him pronouns to offer that up instead of making it the obligation for them to out themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're in spaces with a large amount of people that you don't know for certain, that's always happening. Um, but even in, in the work environment that I'm in with people that I know regularly, it's part of your introduction. This is so-and-so in the space. Mm-hmm. My name's Amy. I use she, I mean, it's on yeah. my zoom account right here, Amy Massey, she, her, yeah. um, because that's just how I make space as an ally for somebody who doesn't identify as cisgendered or using, you know? Yeah. I mean, we've been doing that too. Yeah. Um, and Interesting though, I've been in a few meetings where people have their pronouns and their, um, traditional unceded territory mm-hmm. also written behind their name. Mm-hmm. And if they're chatting in the chat, Jaws is saying the entire thing every single time beside each of their yeah. comments. And it's very <laughs> disruptive to, yes. you know, you're, you're like hearing this, this electronic voice nattering to you over top of whatever you're listening to. Yeah. So it was just an interesting observation that I am like, okay, we're putting a lot of information in our names now, which is like, that's fine if you're not going to be chatting much, but if you're going to be typing in the chat, it's like reading all of it every time. I don't put my land acknowledgement in my, my zoom info, but mm-hmm. I share it when I join a space. Right. Um, when I'm in a, a meeting or in a webinar and I'm asked to share who I am, I mm-hmm. share it in a space. That's um, nice. Yeah. I think, you know, again, it's, if I'm asking folks to do the work around accessibility, then I better be doing Modeling the work. It around yeah. some other stuff that I don't know a lot about. So mm-hmm. um, that's how, and again, Sean, at the end, I feel like 
we can all be really strong allies of each other and there's no harm in that there's only like beauty and grace and empowerment in being able to walk beside somebody that has a different lived experience of, than you and to embrace that as something that is um you know that we can share instead of something that is so different that we have to be afraid of it mm-hmm, absolutely so is there somewhere that an employer can go to learn more about say screen readers or assistive technology or just some of the tools that we use regularly with people as people with disabilities without having to ask the person themselves to teach them about all the things. Yeah. You know, Google is a great resource truly. Um, and I do this. So at work, what I do right now as part of my work, I provide what I call a weekly accessibility nugget. Um, and so I, I go find something. And so it could be, you know, today I'm going to talk about jaws. Um, and I always start with Google, um, because I don't know everything either. Um, I'm, a, I'm a human being um, and, and I'm fallible. Um, and I always start with Google and I do my research um, around whatever the topic is that I want to share. And then I provide a link to a resource so that folks know that these aren't my necessarily all my words, but that these are, are words that I've researched. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, like Canadian assistive technology does a lot of uh, selling of access technology. Um, and they could be a great resource if you wanted to find out about costing or how technology works. Um, you know, so reach out to organizations that are um, supporting members of the community in which, you know, you're looking to access information about. Um, if you go directly to folks with lived experience, this is what we call nothing about us without us. Um, you are inviting us into that conversation. So um, I think that's a place to start, but I would also say that once you've done that research, keep that in your brain, but talk to your employee because they're the ones that's going to know what's best for them instead of you saying, well, I researched this uh, and, you know, this, uh, this is like in my situation, we've researched that, uh, that Microsoft has narrator and I might say, well, I'm a JAWS user. Mm-hmm. So like, thanks a lot for narrator, but that's not going to help me because I, I know JAWS or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So while you can go and do all the information and research you want and should do, you really, really, at the end of the day, need to say, let's have a discussion about what your access needs are and how we can support you to do the best work that you can. And I, and I actually find like there, you know, there may be some folks who, who, who think that that's off-putting, but the world is moving in a direction where open conversation is the way that we're going around access is to drop the assumptions and to let the person with the disability have the autonomy to speak for themselves and to say, this is what I need to do my job the best I can do it. And that's the discussion. One size fits one is one the theme. Here one. we go again, right? <laughs> right. I might tell you that I need a desk lamp or I might tell you that I need a, a blacked out room with, you know, with, uh, with sun blockers on the window. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you, if you say, well, she's all blind people, you know, don't see anything at all. So they don't need a room with light. Well, mm-hmm. that, you know, that's an assumption. And if we wanted to get deeper into it, we would call that an ableist assumption. Mm-hmm. And so we want to avoid that. And the only way to avoid that is conversation. Yeah. With, with the intent of, of open heart, open mind, right. Yes. On both ends. Yes. Thank you so much, Amy. This has been so amazing. I, I feel like I've learned a lot and I think our listeners have as well. And I really appreciate you coming to share all of this and also at such short notice, because, uh, 
just give a, a plug. Amy was on the AT banter podcast recently and I listened to it and that's when I got the inspiration for this conversation mm-hmm. and literally called her up a couple of days ago and said, can you do this? And here we are. So thank I you. I wish I could say Sean, that there was a, a master checklist for accessibility, but yeah. the one size fits one is the way we need to, we need to think about things, mm-hmm. right. And how we foster that in, 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 in culture. Um, and in organizational culture and in, in the people that we have around us. Well, we're going to keep working on it at Blind Beginnings. So hopefully we're moving forward there too. Blind Beginnings is a lovely organization and you should be very proud of what you're doing um, in supporting children and, and their families that uh, are experiencing blindness and partial sight. It's a, you do amazing work, Sean. And thank you. Um, so don't, don't, uh, don't second guess yourself one bit. Just, you know, like I said, figure out where you are on the continuum and make a make a purposeful choice to just move forward. Even, even if they're baby steps, that's all that matters that you move forward. Okay. Thank you. And if anybody is interested in joining our team, our uh, job postings for these part-time program coordinators are posted on our website, which is blindbeginnings.ca. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share our podcast with a friend, like, subscribe, and join us next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.